Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, we are gathered here today for a very special occasion. And I say we are gathered here today because you and I are gathered in the same room for the first time since the two-year anniversary of our podcast. And we were gathered in this very same room in Brooklyn, New York. I'm staring you right in the eyes right now. It's, it's very a little, weird. It's a little surreal. I'm just getting... I'm, I'm so sorry. I just lost my train of thought. I just got, I got lost there for a second. <laughs> I was... <laughs> it feels good. It feels natural. Does it feel natural? Because we've done... So we are now on episode 100 of this podcast. And I think about 50 of them, maybe. We should have probably looked at the numbers of this. But 50 of them have been recorded together and 50 of them have been recorded separately. So we are now on our way to being a truly bi-coastal podcast, meaning we have recorded more separately than together. I guess the benefit of recording separately is if you ever start like going on a long rant about the Mets. I like, made just, the same joke last time we were in the same uh, room together. Yeah, just whip out my phone and just like scroll Twitter or, uh, or go to the bathroom or whatever, whatever I need to do. You really <laughs> scroll Twitter while I'm going on about Pete? That's tough to hear. Just fire off some emails, you know, get a little work done. I do find myself getting a little distracted when we're on separate coasts. You know, like when you're talking, I have to like really keep reminding myself to pay attention to what you're saying so that when you stop talking, I have something to say back, (laughs) which is like the nuts and bolts of a podcast. That's bare bones stuff right there. That's what I tell people when they are learning how to be a better podcaster. I'm like, just listen more. But it is a lot easier to listen when you are staring me right in the face. Yeah, drinking an IPA, being the most Brooklyn you can be. <laughs> it is, I feel that way when like we're interviewing people, you know, and I'm preparing for my next question, and then I realize that I didn't listen to the answer to the previous question, and I'm like, oh wait, I think he paused for laughter or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So if you're ever a guest on this podcast and you're listening right now, just know that we weren't paying attention to anything. <laughs> we we you apologize were in advance. We were very nervous about what the next question we were going to ask was. So it is episode 100. As I mentioned briefly, and I mentioned at the end of last episode. Air horn. Should I put the air horn in? You yeah. Think? Yeah. And like a, maybe like a, you know, like a crowd roar. Okay. Yeah. Can you give me a crowd roar one more time so I can just isolate it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have prepared something semi-special for you. It took us a little bit to come up with this idea, but we're going to try to do a decade end list. We're going to try to do the 10 baseball players that define the decade. And it's a little bit uh, arbitrary, I think, the parameters for this. Uh, but I think it's... Like everything else that we do on this right, podcast. exactly. We like, make the rules. We're, there is baseball reference and fan graphs for a reason, and we are not that. So I think what we're going to try to do is pick the 10 players, one from each year, that not necessarily were the best player. They were not necessarily the MVP. Um, they didn't get the biggest contract necessarily, but more so what players meant the most to the game in that year and what players kind of culturally have stuck with us now in 2019, looking back on the last 10 years. Um, 
you know, kind of like when I was thinking about it, I'm thinking like if we're trying to mint a brand new baseball fan, who is the one person from the past year that we could make a great case as either the face of baseball or a reason that someone new should love baseball. Um, So that's what we're going to try to do in this episode. We hope that that is a worthwhile endeavor for episode 100. Um, But before we get to that segment, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And this is Tipping Pitches. Uh, So decade end lists are always uh, a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They stress me out. They're part of my profession. They're part of anyone who's in digital media's lives. And inevitably, people get left off. The way that you define your parameters becomes more of the conversation than the actual players that you end up choosing because it's a way for people to throw that argument back in your face. I think we're intentionally keeping this arbitrary. It's a gut feeling thing for us. It's looking, we spent a lot of time looking back on the last 10 years and throwing some names down on a list and thinking, what player made the most impact on our baseball psyche or on the collective baseball psyche? I think you'll find that all of these players are actually really good because we're not picking like bit infielders from the Kansas City Royals in 2012. Yeah. Adam Rosales, I'm sorry, you just missed the cut on yeah, this. I you promise. were really close. Yeah. But we didn't necessarily just pick. Mike Trout for every year and where we didn't pick Miguel Cabrera for the first five years. So I hope that this at least a little bit makes sense to you if you're listening. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of sports outlets right now are putting out their like, you know, best of the decade lists. So many, if you just Google like all 2010s MLB team, like you'll find a dozen websites who wrote this piece and included many of the same characters, right? Like, You've got Buster Posey. You've got Troy Tulowitzki, right? You have, like you said, Miguel Cabrera. Then you have a guy like Mike Trout or Bryce Harper. And all incredibly good players that definitely, like from a from purely a baseball perspective, like we look back on this decade and be like, we were blessed to watch them all. But I think the thinking with this was, how do we come at this from the angle of, like which players really changed the way I think that we like talk about the game yes. and the way that we think about the game, because that's what a lot of these players did. Right. I mean, they just kind of turned our whole notion of like how we consume the the sport upside down. Yeah. I think before we get into 2010, I, I did want to uh, note a couple things. Uh, I wanted to find a spot for Tim Lincecum on this list, but I realized in looking that, his back-to-back Cy Young years were 2008 and 2009, which is deeply upsetting to me. Yeah, you're washed, bro. You're I mean, old. I I don't even, I'm not that old. You know, like <laughs> we can't even be considered washed. Like we're 23, we're budding, you know, we're the young superstars. We're the Juan Sotos of the world. But I felt older than 12 watching Tim Lincecum do what he was doing. And I don't know if that was just because like, I was so invested in baseball at the time because I was playing and it was like kind of like my live and die sport at the time that I just felt like it was more of a visceral memory for me watching Tim Linscum pitch. And obviously he's the type of player where you never forget how he plays his pitching motion, that kind of thing, like his diminutive stature and the way that that kind of informed his narrative. But I just think it's weird that the 2010s was not the Tim Linscum decade. Yeah, and I think maybe a part of it has to do with the fact that his 
career, or at least the like peak of his career was so short that you have this idea of just like young Tim Lincecum. And when you look back at like the last 10 years or so, you just kind of lump him in with those like young, like he seems very of the 2010s in that he was this kind of like, um, he, he very much went against the grain in, yeah. in a lot of ways. And he would have fit much, much better than among like the Roy Holidays um, or the Roy Oswalt's or the Roy Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you're right about that. I also think like not to undermine our bit before we even start it, but I think it's a testament to how 10 years is not the decade to that specific 10 years is not always the best time frame to think about eras of things especially baseball because i think of tim lincecum as like 2007 to 2012 and i think of that time period as a very specific type of baseball like just pre-analytics being the only thing that people could talk about and that idea of the young star and tim lincecum being like the young new thing who like is doing it his own way i think that's a huge idea that burst onto the scene in the 2010s like i look back i don't know if this is recency bias but I think of all of the incredibly young and talented players that like flooded our list here and like that we immediately thought to put up. We thought of a lot of like generational prospects that like hit the majors at a young age and were setting all these records for debuting early, home run marks early, stolen bases marks early, playing time early. And it just feels like there are fewer flameouts. Like there are way more sure things in this past decade. We knew, I feel like we knew who was going to be good and they actually turned out to be good. And I'm not saying we as in Alex Baisley and Bobby Wagner. I mean, we as in like people who watch prospects for a living. We as in like the baseball reading community. Yeah, that's an interesting idea, I think. I think it, I think with the different approaches that teams are taking to like player development also, they're teams are starting to see that like there are more ways than one, right? Like if a prospect doesn't fit down one road, it's easier to transition him to another rather than just like to pigeonhole like Rick Ankiel into a position, right? And then make it a big deal when he switches positions. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll get into that a little bit as we get later in the decade and maybe talk about one Shohei Otani, but <laughs> we uh, we start this out by by saying that we're going to review the the players that define the last decade. And the first two names you mentioned were Tim Lincecum and Rick Ankiel. <laughs> no, <So. laughs> be fair. You mentioned Roy Halliday and Roy Oswald. <laughs> exactly. And Roy Rogers. So we're only half washed. Yeah. Um, I love all of those guys a lot. Rick Ankiel throwing the ball over the backstop is a very important moment for me. Um, all right, let's get into it. 2010. Uh, how should we do this? Should we read off the winner? Should we read off the list of guys that we have here? I think we should probably start with the winner. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we'll start with who we chose for that year, and then we'll introduce a couple of the other guys who we considered for the spot and why. Um, it's Felix Hernandez. We landed on Felix Hernandez. Hernandez the 2-2. He got him! 34 years! 119 games! It's finally happened! A perfect game by a Seattle Mariner! It was done by the king! Felix Hernandez! It, it was tough to try to determine how we would even nominate players for something like this. Um, going back and looking at names and lists and MVPs and who led the league in jersey sales and who uh, who was on the cover of MLB The Show. Um, 
for the record, in 2010 and 2011, it was Joe Maurer on the cover of MLB The Show, which just goes to show you what they were aiming for at the time. <laughs> um, Derek Jeter led the league in jersey sales for 2011, 20, 2010, 2011, and 2012. But I just, like, in thinking about Derek Jeter, like, it did feel like his league at the beginning of this decade, which is crazy because now I think of him as Marlins executive. <laughs> Which is the way that you have to think about him because he's so present in the consciousness for that reason still. And we all, we all obviously know what he did as a Yankee and we know he'll be in the Hall of Fame and all of that stuff. But his relevance at the beginning of this decade is undeniable but also doesn't feel like it sticks. And so in choosing Felix Hernandez, I feel like we get to someone who had a level of cultural impact both on the game, the way he pitched, that overpowering style, just incredible stuff that you've seen a lot of players have since then. But also the way that we talk and write about the game. Like, there was an entire cottage industry of baseball writers and fans that developed around the Mariners at the beginning of Felix Hernandez's career that, you know, talking about how he should and deserves to win the Cy Young despite the fact that he's not winning a lot of games just because he's on a bad team. And that's impacted someone like Jacob deGrom. Um, and then kind of looking more analytically at the way that he pitches and appreciating it more and talking more about his pitch usage and what are the best pitch combinations that he can put together to be the best version of himself. So I think Felix Hernandez feels like a good place to start this list off because the passion for him in the larger baseball community is so deeply rooted. I also think he's very much a forefather to the ethos that a lot of today's young stars play with that sort of um that sort of like gusto that they have right playing the game that flair that they have um you know with Felix and his hat cocked kind of sideways yeah and, and the jewelry and, and the jewelry it it always felt a little like he was kind of taunting the the batter but like in the most like friendly affable way possible right and yeah, he's like Manny Machado before Manny Machado right but although slightly less villain like Machado very much <laughs> willing to lean into the role of yeah. the villain whereas like it seemed like Felix Hernandez um would happily like let you in on the bit you know, if you want it, like with a player like Adrian Beltre, who at times seemed like his foil on the field, even though they were best friends. And I think in that sense, he probably opened up and, and really paved the way, I think, for a lot of especially Latin American players who came later on in the decade. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Felix was a tough choice over someone like Roy Halladay. You and I debated this because... I think Roy Halladay as a pitcher was obviously more successful and more dominant. And he was on a Phillies team at the time that had a very legitimate World Series chance and one of the most dominant rotations of the decade, along with Cole Hamels, Cliff Lee, and previously mentioned Roy Oswalt. Um, right. But, per- perfect game during the regular season, no hitter in the postseason, like very much like his year, so to speak. Right. But... Culturally speaking, Felix endures. Yeah. Well, and he also, you know, spent the majority, it seems like it gets papered over a lot, but he spent a majority of his career with the Blue Jays in the previous decade where he was just as dominant. And when thinking about like who defined the 2010s, Halliday absolutely, I think, defined the 2000s 
Um, but certainly in terms of like their, their different styles and approaches to the game, um, Hernandez felt more, I think, kind of uniquely modern in that sense. They were definitely built in, in different molds. Yeah. I mentioned, or I, I wrote down Joey Votto as well. Um, this was Joey Votto's MVP year. This was kind of like the, I remember, <laughs> this is a brief aside and then we'll move on to 2011. But I remember in my, 2010 was my freshman year of high school. In my tech ed class, I remember one of my friends who was a year older than me, who I had played basketball with, just begging the teacher to let him make his uh, graphic t-shirt, like the print that we did in our tech ed class or whatever, just begging him to let him make it a Joey Votto for MVP shirt, <laughs> which the tech ed teacher did not want to let him do because we were in Philadelphia and it was like Ryan Howard and Jimmy Rollins and uh, even Roy Halladay like going for MVP as well. But um, I like how that was the reason and not like he's just trying to make a Joey Votto for MVP t-shirt. <laughs> as like his no. final project. <laughs> no, respect the Philly boys. Literally respect the Phillies. But uh, Joey Votto, very important. Remains very important. I think he's in a smaller corner of the baseball world yes. than someone like Felix Hernandez. Yeah. Um, okay. 2011. I wanted to do Albert Pujols. You, I think, rightly corrected me and put me on course. We ended up going with Justin Verlander. High fly ball, right field. Ordonez backing up. He is there. No hitter for Justin Verlander. I think when thinking about Albert Pujols dominating 2011, what I thought about is his last great season, his last season with the Cardinals, and the discussion about him and the contract that he's going to get, and obviously him winning the World Series, and it kind of being like the perfect bow on a career spent with St. Louis. But you bring up the point that like he's more of a 2000s player, yes, right? He's similar in that mold of, I think, Roy Halladay, right? Of very much defining that 2000s decade. He's one of the only players, Halladay included, and even Jeter, who we met, I mentioned briefly at the beginning, um, who's a relic of the previous decade. Um, it's like Jeter... Mariano Rivera, David Ortiz, in these first few years, they it's kind of like their coronation. Um, Ortiz lasted a little bit longer because he was DH, but it's kind of like their coronation for their accomplishments in the late 90s and the 2000s. So I don't, I, I agree now. I, I agree that Pujols is not a player of this decade. And Justin Verlander is, like he's still trucking along. And 2011 was the, the no-hitter year 2011 was his first Cy Young. Yeah, it felt like a real coming out party. I'll be damned if one of the only memories that I have from the 2011 baseball season that's not the World Series is him hitting 99 or whatever, or 100 in the ninth inning of his no-hitter. Like, an unbelievably electric moment in front of a really invested Detroit crowd that, like, had a lot to root for at the time. Like that, those teams were incredible. He was paired along with Miguel Cabrera, and because of how bad Detroit has been for the last five years, I think we maybe forget how close they were for how long they were close. Yeah, and I think from from kind of 2010, 2011 on, just as far as pitching goes, it was kind of like Justin Verlander and everyone else, and I, obviously Clayton Kershaw as well, who we will 
talk about at a, at a later point on this episode, but it was always kind of like everyone else but Justin Verlander endures, right? And he was really always there. He was kind of that that platonic ideal of what you you would want to get out of like a workhorse starting pitcher. And really, I think kind of the the last of that kind too, as far as the one you would be comfortable writing for 230, 240 innings, letting him pitch into the ninth inning, right? Like he still remains as like one of the only guys, I think, who it's like, we're trying to save our pitcher's arm, but but Justin Verlander, like like he'll be fine. Yeah, he like defines the phrase rubber arm. Yeah. Please respect Jacob DeGrom. <laughs> <laughs> um, Even if the Mets don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, Justin Verlander is like what Tom Brady is. Like he's that good yeah. and he's that, he takes care of his body that well. He's that healthy this late into his career. He's had the resurgence and it's just harder to control winning when you're one pitcher on a baseball team than when you're a quarterback, but that's how good Justin Verlander has been. It's pretty amazing. Um, All right, 2012. Please set the scene for me. God, this was so hard. This was the hardest year. Absolutely. I think because it felt like a real, I think, turning point. I mean, we've talked about kind of this being passing of the torch, right? Yeah. This kind of being the, the time I think around, like we discussed on the last podcast that you and I are, our baseball fandoms, I think started to turn and become something else. Um, and I, Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, right? Like yes. this was that year. What more is there to say? Do you remember when you could be so dumb as to have the, who's better Bryce Harper, or Mike Trout conversation? <laughs> Did but, you have those conversations? Because I had those conversations. And guess what? Your boy was team Bryce for a little while. <laughs> but like that wasn't a ridiculous thing to say, right? And like yes. that's, I think a lot of people were were team Bryce, right? He was always slightly more heralded. And so, and so for the record. I watched that goddamn video of him hitting a 500 foot home run. Granted, with a metal bat in the Marlins park in the high school home run derby or whatever. Like a hundred times? A hundred times. So we we struggled over this one, but we went with. And that is hammered to deep left field. Wow, that ball is crushed. Gone. Big fly for Mike Trout. A two-run shot. It is four to three Chicago. Mike Trout, because it kind of felt like we had to do that, right? He was I, I just like just like Verlander the year before. Like from basically since 2012, it's been Mike Trout has been the point of comparison, right? To every rookie that is called up, to to everyone who's going on a tear, it's like, yeah, Mike Trout did this his rookie year, right? And he is, I mean, he's a generational talent, right? I mean, we could have gotten cute and chosen a guy like Bryce Harper because of the narrative, but right. I think Trout fundamentally changed the way that, like, I think we consume the game and and thought of what a modern superstar looks like. I actually think Bryce Harper has a better case later on. Yeah. Um, but we'll discuss that when we get there. I I sort of think the more interesting point of comparison for 2012 is between I mean, and there's a bunch of guys that we could have chosen. Like there's Josh Hamilton, yeah, who I was really a wanted to pick force, him. an absolute force. Like just the best hitter, no hold barred. You walk him no matter what, if it's a high leverage situation. Well, and I also like, he was the kind of player that it felt like the baseball world was really rooting for. But you know? also like, like outside the baseball world. Outside the baseball like world as well. His story yes. 
expanded the net of who knew what was going on. Yeah. Because he was this guy who has unlimited talent. He has a drug problem. It derails his career. He goes through rehab. He comes back. He's just as good as he was before, if not better. He has this amazing moment at the Home Run Derby, and he's part of a World Series team that just nearly gets there. The Texas Rangers in 2011 just nearly gets there, and he's good in that series. He's good for that whole year. He has like 145 RBIs that year. I know we don't talk about RBIs. I know that's not a thing. I know I'm canceled for saying that, but still. Comes 10 feet away from a five-homer game. Like, Jesus. Yes. But because it was so short, because he bounced around to other teams because frankly, because Mike Trout became the best baseball player of all time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to choose him for that reason. Um, I want to say now though, the most interesting debate in this year is between Mike Trout and Miguel Cabrera. Yes. Because this is the flashpoint for (laughs) everything that would come (laughs) performative knowledge about sports analytics, right? Like if you, there was a certain smarminess that came to knowing that Mike Trout was better than Miguel Cabrera this year, knowing that he should maybe deserve the MVP or he should at least be in contention. Whereas the older baseball talking heads and the powers that be, they were like Miguel Cabrera, immediate MVP. He won the triple crown. No one wins the triple crown and doesn't win the MVP. He's clearly the best hitter in baseball. And he probably was still Mike Trout was a rookie, but this is when we start to have an understanding of defensive analytics. We start to have an understanding of if you play center field and you're good at it, it's very hard for someone who just hits to be more valuable than you. And this sparks so many bad faith conversations throughout the next seven years that we are still having this debate. Like, I feel like I feel like Mike Trout winning on a 70 winning MVP on a 72 win Angels team is still kind of a little bit of a narrative out there. And that was seven years ago. So I'm glad we chose Mike Trout because it's not really a passing of the torch, right? Like he's not taking best player in baseball from Miguel Cabrera. He's taking best player in baseball from Albert Pujols. But still, it's sort of like a an overlap where these two players are neck and neck in a really interesting way for a while. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you, you mentioned something like smarm, right? Like coming from the Mike Trout camp, which I almost feel like it was the at least in in the way that I remember it, it, it felt like the Miguel Cabrera defenders, right? Like the Miguel Cabrera stands were very smarmy in the way that it was almost kind of like, right? It was like the old guard talking to the youngins who like don't know anything, right? It was like, ah, but you must respect the yeah. the sanctity I watched the, Stan Musial play. Crown. I know what Miguel Cabrera is. Right. And and it was the Mike Trout fans, the stat heads, just kind of coming into the public eye with the snark who who bit back and said, fuck you, no one cares about RBIs anymore. Yes. <laughs> they don't matter. Right. You turn this into like a radicals thing. <laughs> like it was punk rock to be for Mike Trout. Yes. Yeah. I I like that. Um I wrote down Pablo Sandoval just because he had an amazing year. And he had an amazing World Series. He was World Series MVP. He hit 500 in the World Series. The Giants obviously were on their even-year magic kick. We should mention that before we move on. But that felt like too much World Series bias. Like, he didn't define that year. He was very fun. He was Kung Fu Panda. He was all these different things. But it's Mike Trout. Well, and I think at a certain point, like, Sandoval's narrative eclipsed like his just ability as a baseball player. Right. Which which fell off a cliff. It'd be like picking Bartolo just because we think he's fun. Yeah. 
which I tried. <laughs> I tried to find a year to put him on here, but it didn't work. Yeah. Okay. 2013. 2013. Oh, man. Another really good year. Another really interesting year for a lot of different reasons. Um, Matt Harvey. Not who we ended up choosing, but I mentioned this last a couple weeks ago. I think, I think in 50 years, we're going to look back on this decade and we're going to look back at all the best pitchers and the best players and we're going to think about guys like Zach Greinke. We're going to look at guys like Justin Verlander. We're even going to look at like the Madison Bumgarner performance in the World Series in Game 7. And we're going to forget how many fans Matt Harvey created. It's going to be very easy to forget the way that he so bombastically stepped into the city of New York and created this character, this narrative, that every five days he owned sports in the biggest sports town in the entire world. And I think that we are running the risk of maybe forgetting that because he burned out so fast and he had like a sexy array for the Angels for the last two years. But like, that that does not happen anymore. If that happened in 2019, you and I would have spent 30 minutes talking about it every single episode. Like that just does that doesn't exist anymore. And it's crazy that it even existed at the time. All that being said, 2013 is the year of Jose Fernandez. Oh wow. Jose sharp break on the slider and just like that he has struck out 5 in a row. Yeah, in there never really felt like a doubt in my mind either which is funny because this very easily could have been Yasiel Puig's year as well it felt like the only potentially reasonable place to to put him and both very similar in character and and spirit um but i think the i mean i think we've talked about this before but just the sheer joy of of Jose Fernandez and watching him pitch i mean and it was it was not just the the dominance right i mean I feel like, but it was also the dominance. But it was also the dominance. I mean, when I think of him, I think of him like on the top step of the dugout, like hanging off the rail, like banging on the banging on the rail and cheering for his teammates, which is so funny to me because he was literally like going to be one of the best pitchers of of his generation, right? Like, and yet the most defining and memorable part of him was like his personality and like his infectious smile. Yeah. You know, I. So I watched so many 2014 and 15 games between the Mets and the Marlins. And watching that Mets rotation, watching that dream Mets rotation with Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard, not Wheeler at the time, but Mats, who was still like a reasonable pitcher at the time. And every time Jose Fernandez would pitch, I would just think, he blows all of these other dudes away in a landslide. And you're so right about like when you think about when you think about Fernandez, you don't necessarily think about that sweeping curveball, even though you probably should, because it was the best pitch of my lifetime that I've been able to observe so far. I think about like the time that he almost got hit by a pitch and then he got mad at the pitcher, but then they they realized that it was an accident and they like hugged it out at first base. Like just such an incredible spirit for the game like an incredible competitiveness that manifested in a way that was nothing but love like i think we overuse that like it's love man like you know after the game ends we all like hug and we say it's love man but like 
literally the way that he played the game, the way that he did his profession was nothing but love for the game, for the people he played the game with the people that allowed him to go out there and compete against him. Like I just, I can't imagine a player being like that again. I can't. And it's so fucked that we don't get to have him anymore. It's so incredibly fucked, but 2013 is his year. And to give it to someone other than Yasiel Puig, if you're a listener of this podcast, for us to do that, you know what high praise that is. That is the highest praise. Yasiel Puig is literally our logo. (laughs) The one when we were talking about this idea, we were like, let's find the Yasiel Puigs of the last 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) So that brings us to our first honorable mention. We are going to throw Yasiel Puig on the list of honorable mentions. We will run down that entire list when we get to the end. But Yasiel Puig will not be making a list. Yasiel Puig will not be the winner for any year, which is crazy. But this was really the only year we could conceivably think about him. And I I think he is still absolutely, like, hands down, one of the most important players yeah, of the last Yeah, he's like a decade. roving player of the decade. In, in part because, like, he has been the really the flashpoint in every conversation about um the way that the game is being played today right yes. like he has been the the focal point the the face of every single um narrative since he was called up right questions about his character and his commitment and his hustle everything there's the word his, yeah <laughs> everything came from that and he has persevered and and come through it all, I think a a um, a really incredible light and joy in yes. the game that we that we watched today. Hundred percent, he deserves to be on this list. I yeah. can't believe we didn't get him on it, yeah. but it's just Yasiel Puig and these ten other guys. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the breaks. Um, okay, twenty fourteen. It's Madison Bumgarner. A World Series win for the San Francisco Giants. For the third time in the last five years. And their hero, Madison Bumgarner. Yeah. 2014 is the year of the culmination of even your magic. The culmination of, not the culmination of who Madison Bumgarner is, but I think the peak that defined his career. And I think it's crazy that he's still under 30 because of how much he's accomplished because of how many opportunities he's gotten and how many times he's answered that call, you and I, like, we hate Madison Bumgarner. <laughs> he's annoying. He's aggressive. He's played the game the right way. He's all of these annoying things that we say that we dislike about the game, but he undoubtedly defined a year of baseball. I look back on 2014, I don't really think about anything else besides the World Series, besides him in that incredible postseason run and pitching three times in the World Series. And winning World Series MVP. And also, if you look back on the last two years of postseason play, starters are going in relief. Starters are pitching on their throw days. The Washington Nationals just won a World Series using the Madison Bumgarner format. He was a revolutionary, and the way that Bruce Bochy used him revolutionized how aces get used in the playoffs. It just did. And he, for that reason, is kind of iconic in this decade. In, in, I just said that so much without throwing up. Like I, I'm impressed with myself. In in a somewhat annoying sense, be, just because I think that like the the conversation hinged on him so much for like the next year or so. But like he did everything he needed to do to like 
put himself in that conversation. I mean, and he was an incredible pitcher in his own right before then, right? And and after then even. And, you know, who knows where he ends up next year. He's obviously like slowed down in the last couple of years, but yeah. solely because of a postseason performance, like he's cemented himself among just like the pitchers of this decade in general. He did it to the Mets in 2016. I mean, when he wasn't even at his peak, like he just complete game shut out. The Mets lost two nothing in the wild card game. And frankly, he could have gone 10. He could have gone 11. He, they didn't even, it, it didn't matter. They were never going to score against him. And that's who he is. And that's who he, we will remember him as. And his face will unfortunately be right beside all these other nine players when we mock this up. <laughs> 2015. This is my favorite one to argue. Oh, I was ride or die for Bryce Harper. You were ready. You got to 2015 when we were talking about this. And I was and like, you were it's just Bryce like, Harper. Let's it's Bryce. On. And I was like, it's not. Okay. Before we do the Bryce Harper conversation, quick shout out to Wilmer <laughs> Flores. Love of my life. I just have a little uh, counter over here on my phone of how many uh, Mets players are mentioned. <laughs> it's going to be more than... Oh, wait till other- 2019. God. I can't believe I didn't write Jacob deGrom's name anywhere on this list. Wilmer Flores, obviously not a player of the decade. But... He's your player of the decade. The Mets made the World Series in 2015. And their season literally hinged on one insane week that involved Wilmer Flores almost getting traded, crying on the field, and remaining a Met and playing a very substantial role in their playoff run. That's kind of weird. That that kind of hasn't happened like ever. <laughs> Where this like I mean, yes, but that specific set of events has not really happened. Like this event or this exercise for us sort of turned into like a damn remember when this happened or damn remember this player and how influential and important he was and i just think we should all remember wilmer flores it's my take let's remember some guys man let's, let's remember some guys <laughs> now for the good stuff i thought bryce harper for 2015 because this was like bryce's let's make baseball great again year and that's when he rebranded himself as that's what he wanted to do it's when he followed through on the promise that was put on him when he was picked first overall by the Washington Nationals, the savior of baseball, the phenom, this talent that had no other choice but to be fulfilled. 2015 was the year that that happened. Yeah, that we said Bryce Harper and Barry Bonds have done X thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> And I recognize the flaws in this argument because I know that the Nationals didn't make the playoffs his year didn't go to much. He hit three, 330 with 42 home runs, but it was on a team that had a losing record. But the, the hair, the bat flips, the quotes, him talking to the press, the back and forth with Jonathan Papelbon, like, he feels like the definition of a flashpoint in terms of what you appreciate about baseball. Because... If you can appreciate his sort of level of archness, then you can appreciate basically anyone. You, it's not a far bridge to cross for you to appreciate someone like Yasiel Puig if you can also appreciate Bryce Hyper. And I, I think for that reason, he like widens the net for how we think about a superstar and how weird they can be and how uh, orchestrated they can be and that kind of thing. But you 
You say you like bat flips, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Let me introduce you to Jose Batista. So for 2015, we chose Jose Bautista. Yeah, and, and it was and it was close. And this is obviously like th- these ten players will differ for every everyone personally. But I think as far as um, just like defining images from the last decade, you know, let alone that year, like Jose Bautista's bat flip against the Texas Rangers is unparalleled and. You can think about it from a purely aesthetic point of view. Like I, you know, I remember watching that game with you, right? In our exactly school where we newspaper were. office, literally sitting on the desk, right? So here's Google Google Drive went down. Yeah. So we had an hour and a half to just watch this baseball game without having to do work because our entire student newspaper ran on Google Drive. And we were just sitting there watching the inning, the inning yeah. unfold yes. together. And I think from that point on, it was like, oh, yeah, baseball is right at the center of our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, and in the context of the, the game and the season, obviously that his home run and his bat flip and the way that like the momentum changed just as like a baseball fan, you obviously have to appreciate and enjoy that moment. But I also think that it really expanded our conversation of I don't know celebrations you know like 2015 Jose Bautista is literally the precursor to the we play loud yes initiative yeah he is the foundation for before MLB went and like corporatized yeah he's we play loud before we play loud he's like punk (laughs) yeah yeah and there was conversation at the time right about like disrespect like they beamed him. Yes. Like <laughs> Rugned Odor. Years later. Rugned Odor socked him in the face. <laughs> like <laughs> without 2015 Jose Bautista bat flip, we don't get the fun and interesting version of the conversation about Tim Anderson. We only get the let's hit him with all of the pitches version of the Tim Anderson conversation. Yeah. And and I think purely for that, I mean, it feels like such a, a simple moment, but I think it had much more of an impact than than beyond that single game, right? I mean, the Blue Jays... It's the greatest bat flip of all time. Oh, hands down. The greatest baseball celebration of all time as well. Yes, absolutely. Which is, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we watched that live. 120 years of baseball, and this was it. <laughs> A first-round series between the Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays. Neither team made the World Series that year. Stunning stuff. And it mattered more than anything from 2015. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. But also, here's another reason that we can academically defend Jose Bautista. He was a very flawed player who changed the way he played, developed as a player in only the way that you could in the 2010s. In a previous decade, he's flamed out. He's done. But he changes his swing. He goes to Toronto. And he becomes a home run king. Like, that doesn't happen in any other decade. And for that reason, he's very indicative of this decade. He's very, he fits in nicely with the way that older players have adjusted their game and become three true outcomes. Guys who 
can have an impact on a team that wins 100 games or whatever the Toronto Blue Jays did that year. Like, the MVP of the league was on his team that year, and I don't care about him. Josh Donaldson, not culturally impactful. Like, obviously, he's a swing change guy. Obviously, he's a misogynist. We get it. (laughs) Obviously, his hair sucks. Obviously, Barstool is his homepage. (laughs) Obviously, he doesn't need all that eye black. How long can we keep this going? But yeah, but obviously those shades are terrible. But (laughs) Batista very much represented, I think, what a lot of teams looked to do with their own players moving forward. Like you said, three true outcomes. Jose Batista was like... Oh, he's not toolsy anymore? Let's just turn him into a 52 home run guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's the... He's the platonic ideal of that. And I think that that is what sways me past Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper, welcome to the Honorable Mentions Club. (laughs) Bang. (laughs) Bryce Harper, not on the top 10 most important players of the last decade. Incredible stuff. I think if you told me that we would have found a way to leave off Bryce Harper, Clayton Kershaw, who we forgot to mention during 2014, and Yasiel Puig, I would have been like, why are we even doing this exercise? Yeah. <laughs> we'll have the Clayton Kershaw discussion in a bit. Just just bombing our credibility in real time. <laughs> if you came here for credibility, I don't know why you're listening. 2016, really weird year. Tough year. Really weird year. Yeah. Obviously, the Cubs as a team dominated this year. The curse narrative, the best team in baseball narrative, the dynasty narrative, which started prematurely in this year. Um, but the just unbelievably loaded nature that the way that the Cubs approached this season was the narrative this year. So individually, I ran down that list of Cubs players, and it's like none of them were really the face of baseball in that year. None of them are really the most enduring player because of what they did in the 2016 season. I mean, we could have forced it and given it to a guy like Javier Baez. We could have. We could have done Bryant too, right? Like as that being like him as the the. The franchise cornerstone, right? Literally at third base. Yes. But I think Javier Baez has solidified himself as a face of baseball since then. He's now playing shortstop. He's now the face of that franchise. He's the guy that they're not going to trade, apparently. And it just felt disingenuous to kind of retroactively put that on him when that's not what he was during 2016. That was a team thing. That Yeah, that Cubs team felt very... Just like... just a, a rotisserie of young, unbelievably talented players. Yeah, but it was the the edges felt very sanded down, you know, like it was this I mean, it was this team that was very meticulously built with a bunch of fun young stars who maybe like didn't necessarily have that edge yet, right? Like we weren't really sure the the kind of player that Anthony Rizzo might be, even though he was already good, right? 29. Like yeah, had previously played with the Red Sox. <laughs> It's really weird career for him. Yeah, seriously. I mean, Bryant He's came made up, the most of it. But like he was just polished and normal and boring, right? Like Chris Bryant. Boring as shit. Not an interesting guy. Super and boring. Not looks, my face of baseball. Looks bad with a hat off. So wow, body. <laughs> couldn't be me. Um another guy we I, I threw down here on this list is David Ortiz. That was the year of his um retirement tour. I think that was a really big conversation at the time. And he's someone who's transitioned very nicely into like a booth. And he's an ambassador of baseball. He is a face of baseball undeniably. But I felt like we would have been rewarding him for what he did in the 2000s. And that's not the point of this exercise. So here's where we landed. Because I love this guy. Had to get him on. 2016 was a very good year for him. It was his arrival. And since then, I think that he made his case for the face of baseball. And I think that he might endure and remain as the face of baseball. It's Francisco. He almost did it. 
open up the ball game. And now he does it here in the fifth. A two-run shot by Francisco Lindor in front of all of his fans here in Puerto Rico. And they're calling for a curtain call. I think 2016 was the year that we could conceivably think of him as the next face of baseball. And when I say that, I don't mean he's taking the belt from Mike Trout as the most important player, the best player, or anything like that. When I say that, I mean, here's a guy I want to show to someone I want to love baseball. Like, if someone's like, I haven't watched baseball in a while, who's some guy, what are some guys I should check out? Uh, what are some teams that I should watch? I'm telling you to watch Cleveland, and I'm telling you to watch Francisco Lindor. Like, that's it. That's it. That's 2016 was the year that started, and it remains in 2019 and beyond. So, in a weak year that I wrote down Vin Scully as a potential, <laughs> it felt like the ni- a nice time to sort of shoehorn him in to the conversation, but it doesn't feel out of question to kind of put him in there. I mean, Cleveland made the World Series in 2016 so yeah Uh, yeah it's interesting because like Lindor doesn't necessarily feel like the best representative of the 2010s but he feels like whatever what the 2010s were leading up to you know like the culmination of everything that was building in the 2010s that being this kind of youth movement and the the way that teams were changing the way that they think about player development, as well as the kind of burgeoning personalities that were beginning to show themselves on the field. And the fact that like players could have fun all of a sudden, (laughs) right? Like, like does Francisco Lindor exist as he does right now, like 20 years ago? I don't know. Probably not. I don't think so. He's also like, he's like the mic'd up player come to life. Like he was created in a fucking government lab to be mic'd up and to be interviewed during the All-Star game. And like this sort of like MLB advanced media, we want to market our guys as like brands. We want to try to extract personality from these guys where we can. I think they do a very, very bad job of that. But I think someone like Francisco Lindor is so good at it that he overcomes the bad job that they do with it. And I mean, for that reason, he can be representative of my decade. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just roasting MLB social out here. I think that, like, obviously it's a narrative that's trying to change. And it is, it's obviously partially on MLB and it's partially like an internal culture, right? That, oh, it's like, on fans. That, too. like, and it's on fans that allows um, these players to shine. So it definitely doesn't fall on, I think, any one entity, but. Definitely all the pieces kind of had to be in place for a player like Francisco Lindor to like blossom at the time that he did. Yes. Okay. 2017. I think similar to 2016, this is a year of a team. It's the year of the Astros. Um, It's the year of the beginning of the Astros death machine, death star. Um, But none of those individual players, I think for that reason really stood out. So Aaron Judge. Deep to left field. Going back to Brown. Looking up. See ya. He's done it. Home run number 50. No rookie has ever hit 50 home runs in a season. Kill Aaron Judge right now. 52 home runs as a rookie. Yankees outfielder. 
very handsome, very good at interviews, just a superstar, just a bona fide, good old all American fucking superstar. That's what he is. Yeah. I don't know any reason that we shouldn't pick him. Do you? <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm giving it a little bit more thought right now. And I think that, I think if you were to pick someone like Carlos Correa, it would be defensible in looking at him through the lens of like, he is the the product, like the fruits of the the Astros tanking job that teams would just go on to emulate, right? Like, sure. like the Astros <laughs> started a revolution, honestly, in the way that they, and it's not even necessarily like- Well, I think the give, Cubs did too. Yeah, yes. Yeah, they did. Um, the Astros were just very good at being very, very bad. They were better at it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they did the revolution better. And and Carlos Correa for a long time was like the guy, the crown and, jewel, and he made it all the way through. Right, like from the moment he yeah. was drafted, he he came up and and like did exactly what he was supposed to do. And so, perhaps not necessarily representative of that year. Although I do think he is, uh, you have to look at him in a larger picture of like everything that would come, right? Like Carlos Correa came up and every team saw that and said, we can get that too. Yeah. Yeah. Although the thing, I think Carlos Correa has great PR because like he's not better than the other players that the Astros got out of that rebuild. He's just the most recent one. Yeah. Well, he was always the most. Highly, highly touted, touted prospect, yes. which is what what I think carries him, and he's still a good player. He's and, very good, and the bust rate on prospects is still high. So for him to come through and just be solid to above average is like I'm sure the Astros are happy with that. I, I just like we just got finished saying the same stuff about Francisco Lindor. We could have said the same stuff at the time about Corey Seager. We can say the same stuff now about Fernando Tatis Jr. I just feel like highly touted superstar shortstops they happen but like jose altuve doesn't happen that feels like the thing where like if you give yourself as many bites at the apple as possible those kind of guys come to your system george springer jose altuve you know lance mccullers jr like these guys feel like the reason that you should do what the astros did not necessarily carlos correa like I think a lot of teams would have picked Carlos Correa. You know, I don't think a lot of teams could have developed Lance McCullers into what he is. You know what I mean? So for that reason, like, I find Aaron Judge to be more compelling from 2017 because Aaron Judge is a testament to how much it still matters to have a face of baseball who sells a shit ton of jerseys for the biggest, most influential team in the United States. Like, (laughs) I think it still matters. I think we get pretty worked up about all this stuff about the popularity of our game. But then you look and Aaron Judge sells like 70 million jerseys every year. And you're just like, okay, I see it now. I see a pathway for someone to be very famous as a baseball player. Yeah, Aaron Judge definitely feels like the politically correct choice to make wow. like the like the, wow like the Roast safe me. like the safe choice to make oh like my it's God. very like it's very me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy to like see him as the face of baseball, right? Being in pinstripes, he's got he's got this like chiseled jawline and cute face, and he can poke a little fun at himself on Jimmy Kimmel. Is that what or Jimmy Fallon? Whatever, one of the one of the Jimmy's shows, you know. So 
for context, he's the only guy that we've chosen who was on the cover of MLB The Show the next year. Yeah, which is interesting, Yeah, I think. He which is- means we're too obvious <laughs> with the Aaron Judge pick. But like, no, I don't, I don't think it means that. I think he's definitely like very definitional of this period for sure. The nice part about Aaron Judge is that it's okay to like him for the reasons that the problematic baseball, radio, and TV people like him for. It's a little bit more complicated when people sing the praises of someone like Brett Gardner, but when they sing the praises of someone like Aaron Judge, who's very composed, he seems like a gentleman. He seems like he's the kind of guy who's willing to sign autographs for like hours after the game. Like it's okay for us to like that, you know, like just because the general public loves him doesn't mean we don't have to love him just as much. (laughs) Yeah. Just because he's on the evil empire. We're not not that jaded and like irony poisoned that we can hate Aaron Judge. Okay, 2018, the year of Otani. It's showtime, baby. That's out toward right center field. Going back on it is Zimmer. At the wall, gone! Big fly, Otani-san! Shohei Otani just about ready to take the mound here at the Big A. Making his home debut on the bump. Cozart out in shallow right, 2-2 pitch. Swing and a miss, down goes Joyce, one away. This pitch right here, split, straight down. Otani is the guy who, obviously, we talked about in hushed tones. Like he was the most exciting thing preseason in any baseball season that I can remember. I mean, obviously, you get excited about your team if your team's really good. You get excited about prospects if they're going to come up, but that usually doesn't happen right away, as we've talked about a million times on this podcast, and. It's usually not with so much intrigue as with Shohei Otani. And you usually don't get this excited about someone who's not on your team or at least in your division or whatever it might be. And Otani is a large exception to that. Everybody was excited about him. He broke fantasy baseball. They had to split him into two players. And what better indication of what the 2010s is than allowing an international player to come over, break down barriers in a way that makes him most valuable to his team. Like, that's the reason that they let him pitch and hit. It's not because he likes to. It's because for that reason, he's valuable. He's one guy who can be good at both. And that is a very good indication of what teams value and why something like Shohei Otani happened. But we're sitting here and we're like, this guy's just amazing. Do you think and he's that- fun. And he's really young and he's like six foot four and the most handsome guy in baseball. Just talking about this, do you think that he gets paid like Mike Trout's salary plus Justin Verlander's salary? You know, like do they pay him as a pitcher and a hitter? Like does he just go in and be like, give me 500 mil? Oh, you mean like when his contract is up? Yeah, he'd be like, I can do both for you. Because he should. (laughs) I don't think he will. (laughs) Uh, no, I think he's probably going to get less than Mike Trout. Yes, I think so too. Um, yeah, when you, when we started talking about this idea uh, for the podcast, he was the first guy that popped into my head, I think, because just in terms of like, again, like how we talk about the game and like pushing the boundaries of what is even possible, he was like, he fundamentally like just altered what we thought was 
it was possible. And it's something that other teams are following through now too. And it's not like Shohei was like the first one. Teams were already kind of fiddling with this before, but like he came over as this basically finished product at 22, right? Like, and and just blew everyone away. And it's so interesting because he could just as easily be like the model for the 2010s as he could for the 2020s, right? He's so young that like, if yes. he comes back all right from Tommy John and is able to stay healthy for like the next 10 years, he could easily be the face of the 2020s, no doubt. Yeah. So at the end here, I have a little prediction segment, so I'll save what I think about that for that for then. But yeah, I mean, and also 2018, not really a lot of other options. There could have been repeats. Like I wrote down Lindor. I even wrote down Puig for 2018 because... I think the conversation about Puig kind of resurfaced because he was with the Dodgers in the World Series and he was good again. You know, like he was an everyday player for them again after having been sent down to the minors and his journey, we were kind of on a different part of his arc at the time. But I mean, it's Otani. Like he has sparked so many interesting conversations. He has literally broken down barriers in terms of what players can do and how they're thought of. I mean, I mean, single-handedly changed the way we talk about the entire franchise of the Angels, right? Like, they signed him, and it was like... They they're could, interesting. They could do it. Yes. Like, like, they're in this now. And in retrospect, like, we shouldn't have thought that. They weren't in it. <laughs> <laughs> but they still kind of are, right? And Shohei Otani's, like, mere presence is a testament to that. Signed Garrett Cole. I want them to sign Garrett Cole and I want Otani and Cole to like talk shop. That would be fun. Yeah, not for me as an A's fan. I want to all of them. the Astros secrets to be passed on through Garrett Cole to Shohei Otani, but I don't want him tainted by that fucking organization. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 2019. This is it. The last year. I, oh, it's I, obviously Pete Alonso. <laughs> This is a this is a hard one because like you we don't have we the don't benefit have of like of like perspective or hindsight or anything like that. Yeah. So we can kind of only go off the players who like we're still basking in the glow of, right? Like mm-hmm. and we're still very much like like feeling we're going to be watching them for years to come at this point. Decades, decades to come. <laughs> But we did differ on on where we wanted to go with this one. Yes. Uh, shall I make my case first? By all means. Fernando Tatis Jr. is the most exciting player in baseball. And I know that's not what we were trying to measure because then our list would be very different. Like the most exciting player in baseball in 2011 was not Justin Verlander. He didn't even play every day. You know what I mean? Like I just the visceral joy that I get from Fernando Tatis Jr., is a way that I want to watch baseball. It's the way that I want to think about baseball because take a shot if you're listening, but that's how we watch basketball, right? Like we watch these superstars and we let them control the narrative. And someone like Fernando Tatis Jr. who plays with such electricity is the type of player who can wrestle that narrative away from other sports and bring it to a sport like baseball. All that being said, I recognize that he is not he's not yet the face of baseball. He will be my prediction for the 2020s for the face of baseball because he's on a young team that is spending money 
He's at a premium position. He's very good at all aspects of baseball. He's very handsome and he's very fun. He's funny. He obviously exudes joy in the way that Francisco Lindor does. Well, and interestingly enough, he was kind of, I mean, he was the player who multiple stars on his team advocated for to bring up regardless of service time implications, which I think is a really interesting conversation, especially with a lot of these young stars. The fact that Machado and Hosmer would go to bat for him, no pun intended, pun intended, and, and basically go. So was the pun intended or unintended? (laughs) It was, I think it was intended. Please never mention Eric Hosmer on a Players of the Decade pod ever again. The next Players of the Decade pod that we do 10 years from now. They went to the front office and said, it doesn't matter six or seven years down the road. He deserves to be up now. And it worked. And Yeah, because they were like, if you don't call this dude up now in our window, by the time I'm bad making $40 million a year, you're going to be fired. So just yeah, call him I mean, up. I mean rarely do GMs or front offices really ever think in that way. It's possible that the tides are changing. I mean, you know, there were similar rumblings around Pete Alonso, who was also called up regardless of service time implications. I don't think we should like stand up and applaud GMs for just calling players up when they're ready. No, we should applaud Brody Van Wagenen. Yes, we should. Until he comes on our podcast. I think that Tatis Jr. is only hamstrung did he pull his hammy to end the year? <laughs> he did. His only hamstrung pun intended by the fact that he was playing on a team that was not really in the national spotlight. And I mean, he had... So, so what you're saying is this is Southern California bias from me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> I, I, warm and, weather. And got 350 plate appearances this year or whatever. I think that he absolutely he was probably more in the consciousness of like the baseball fan who was like somewhat in the know who has like followed him since he's been a prospect, which like he absolutely was and is and like has shown that he is very capable of living up to that. But in terms of like just capturing the national attention, carrying over from his debut as a teenager in 2018. I felt like it had to be one soda. One ball, one strike. Drive, drive, base hit to right. That'll score one. That'll score two as the ball gets away from Bishop and right. That's going to score three runs. And the Washington Nationals have the lead. They have Soto hung up. They tag him out, but nobody in this joint cares. Especially, and and I don't know if that's bias from the World Series win, but I don't think it hurts him that he showed his exuberance and how good he is, like on a on a national stage. And no pun intended. <laughs> oh wow, yeah, <laughs> that one wasn't. <laughs> and once again, like felt like the maybe 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 the best representation of the 2010s and like the youth movement and like pushing it to the furthest extremes and it working because young players are better than ever, better than we've ever seen them. Right. Yeah. At younger ages. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And Soto coming up in 2018 and raking and, and giving us a little tease was I, wonderful, but in 2019, for him to like fully break out and mature into the star that he is right now, while still having that kind of like 
youthful joy and exuberance as he plays the game, right? Like, I mean, he was, like, there were questions about the void that Bryce Harper would leave, and then Juan Soto came up, and the question stopped, Yeah, right? Like, (laughs) that is stunning. Yeah, I think for baseball fans who were in the know, I think that was expected, and that's maybe why, like, I'm a little less surprised by, like, what went on with Soto, and I'm a little less blown away like the wonderment is not quite as much there as as we're like as watching as it is for when I watched Fernando Tatis Jr. like I watched a ton of Juan Soto games this year and like he's just great like he's just really great at baseball and he is fun he he does have this crazy magnanimous personality and that's why I'm more than happy to put him as the 2019 representative and I think the most compelling version of this case that you're making is doing it on the national stage and remaining truly authentically himself. Like, almost weirdly so. Who in any facet of the world does not at least kind of assimilate or kind of shrink down when the spotlight is that hot? Almost everybody adjusts to the stage that they're on. Like, what Juan Soto does in game 117 against the Pirates where he takes a pitch and kind of swipes his leg back and forth in that very trademark manner. Like, literally should not be what he's doing in game six of the World Series. But he was. He was. And that absurd confidence and commitment to being who you are and what got you there and also, like, frankly, the the love that he showed and the pure passion that he showed with his father after making it to the World Series, like, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing stuff. Juan Soto is a pretty amazing player. He's 21 fucking years old. (laughs) That's our list. Um... Let's run down the honorable mentions real quick and then I'll list off everyone. So we said Bryce Harper, Yasiel Puig. Uh, I threw Jose Altuve on here because he popped up multiple years. 2014 was the first year that he popped up on our list. I think that was the first year that he was really like, he. you could conceivably say that guy is the best hitter in baseball. Like just the best pure contact, power, combination hitter in baseball. Um, I mean, I still think it's Mike Trout, but whatever. That's a debate that we don't need to have in this moment. Um, and then finally, oh, and then 2017 for Altuve was the other year that he came up just because like, I think the conversation around the Astros like can't happen the way that it does without Jose Altuve in 2017 because he's like the most endearing figure in baseball. Um, the elephant in the room is six foot five and left-handed and the best pitcher of his generation. <laughs> My mom is smiling somewhere right now that you said it on the podcast. (laughs) She's going to yell at us for not putting him on this list. (laughs) Clayton Kershaw. I don't even know how to talk about him anymore. Like his career has been so clouded with expectation because of the Dodgers and who they are and where he pitches and how good he was early on and how good, frankly, he remains. But all of the playoff shit, his career has been so Someone has poisoned the well in how we can talk about him, but we don't need to talk about all of that stuff right now. I think he is unabashedly one of the honorable mentions, one of the roaming players of the decade, whatever you want to call it. He should be mentioned with all of those 10 guys. 
Harper, Puig, Altuve, and Kershaw. Yeah, and and I don't know if it's that we came to like just expect his dominance after a certain point. Like I like I really thought about it for 2014. 2014, he could was his, you know, he posted like a one. 0.77 ERA. Or Ooh, it hurts even more that we chose like Bumgarner for 2014. Yeah, Bumgarner over him. Yeah. But like that was a stunning year from him. I think that was his 300 strikeout year as well. And, you know, like, like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, it's not just like the statistical significance of these players, but obviously his presence looms over all of this, right? Like he, he really is, if you just look at the, the last 10 years of baseball, he's the the best, best pitcher. Yeah, the and best the, pitcher. Yeah, like there's there's just no question about it. I I think the the most compelling case for Clayton Kershaw being on this list, not your specific whatever, is that he is the one of the only players. I think we could put like a guy like Mike Trout there. I think it's pretty much only him and Mike Trout that he has changed my threshold for belief of what a player can do how good they can be in a 162-game baseball season, the records they can set, just the sentences that you can say about what they've done in their career, I did not have that threshold of belief before those two guys. Like, obviously, Barry Bonds existed. There's a steroids conversation there. But Mike Trout and Clay- Clayton Kershaw in the 2010s literally changed what I believed that one single human being could do on a baseball field. The fact that Clayton Kershaw lowered his career ERA every year when it was in the twos, the fact that he won MVP in 2014, the fact that he struck out 300 guys, the fact that his curveball is the best pitch of this generation, barring Jose Fernandez's curveball. Like, I I just don't think that you can have a good faith conversation about what it means to be a dominant pitcher in this decade without starting and ending with Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, and hands down, I think one of the easiest players to root for as well and like not feel bad about it either. Yeah. And, and the the face of the Los Angeles fucking Dodgers. Yeah. The Los Angeles Dodgers, the second most important team in baseball. And yet here we are and he hasn't made our list. Maybe if he'd won a playoff series or something like that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to do a couple quick predictions for 2020? Hell yeah. Okay. Fernando Tatis Jr. Bang. Your boy. <laughs> um, any others? It feels a little obvious, but Ronald Acuna Jr. Mm. I thought you were going to say Marcus Simeon. <laughs> <laughs> no. 2019 belongs just to him. Mark Canna. <laughs> Mark Canna. Um, Acuna feels like a very obvious choice to like be the sort of um, Lindor-esque player, right, of like the 2020s. He, not only is he going to be one of the best players of the next decade, but you know that he's going to be one of the most like exuberant players. And mm-hmm. it feels like he kind of, like, not saying we forgot about Ronald Acuna Jr., but like with the glut of young stars, like we kind of forgot about a little Ronald bit. Acuna Jr. Yeah. He's like Juan Soto, but better. Yeah. Play center field. <laughs> uh, my, my, my dark horse, my dark horse sleeper candidate, the 2020s important players, Yohan Mankata. Hmm. You're not giving up on him. I, I'm not giving up on him. Plays for a team that is just coming into their own. He is an incredibly toolsy player who had an underrated, really good year. 
Also, he is fucking cut and he's cute as hell. <laughs> and all of those things, I think, work in his favor. Yeah. I just don't know enough about him yet, you know? <laughs> like, so that's why it's okay to predict him for the 2020s, but I want to know more. Yeah. I mean, and he's still young, right? Like, this is, I mean, he's 24, but he just had one really good year. Yeah. With so, more to come. I kind of feel like Gleyber Torres could be Derek Jeter. I realize how ridiculous that sounds to say, but he has like Derek Jeter energy in terms of how consistent he is, in terms of how well he handles everything about New York, his versatility, the just prodigal talent at such a young age and the calm, cool and collected way in which he approaches it. If he has anything approaching that level of popularity in New York, he will be the face of baseball in 2020s. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting conversation around him is like whether or not he stays there. And that's the conversation around every young star in these our modern times, right? Is like like Francisco Lindor could easily be the face is the face of the Indians franchise, right? He could be their Derek Jeter, and yet he is 100% going to be traded like 7 months from now or like 7 hours from when this podcast posts. Yeah, exactly. So like <laughs> It's it's a really interesting time that we're going into as far as like baseball stardom because you don't necessarily just have that like your like rock that you build the team around. Trout might be that guy, and I can't really think of another one. It would have been Harper, but you know, here we are. All right. That feels like as good a place to end it as any. Obviously, there are a lot of players we did not mention. Obviously, there are a lot of players going forward that we hope surprise us that we don't even know about yet. If there is somebody that you think for a specific year, please feel free to reach out to us and share tipping underscore pitches on Twitter, tipping pitches pod at gmail.com. Alex's phone number is 516. (laughs) Hit us with your Mookie Betts takes. Tell me why Mookie Betts is the player. No, 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 I'm kidding. Tell me why DJ LeMayhew is is the player of the decade. Someone's going to come in hot with like some Whit Merrifield takes. I hope that they do. Player of the decade, Whit Merrifield. Give me some Max Kepler. He's just a good old fucking farm-raised baseball boy. (laughs) That's a player of my decade. Absolutely. We've had a lot of fun over the course of the last 100 episodes. We've done a lot of dumb stuff. We've done a lot of serious conversation. We hope to continue to do that for 100 more episodes. And we hope that you will join us along the way and potentially send it to other people who will join along the way. And and thank you to everyone who has made it this far. Even or listen you know, to we, any of the hundreds. Yeah, listen to even just one, even part of one. You know, which maybe it'll be Bernie Sanders one day. Maybe he'll listen to part of one. We, you know, that's a callback, folks. Yeah, we hope <laughs> you're you a real to the last episode. A real one. <laughs> listen to the last episode. <laughs> um, rate us five stars on iTunes. Thanks. Bye. Talk to you next week. <laughs> that's how you end the podcast. <laughs> But it's just a super cut of us Super cut of us Oh, it's just a super cut of us Super cut of us But it's just a super cut of us Before we get to that segment, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Paisley. And this is Tipping Pitches. Live. From New York. It's... Tuesday, Tuesday night. night. <laughs> in my head, in my head, I do everything right. When you call, I 
I'll forgive and not fight all the moments I play in the dark.